Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, Minnesota Attorney General Lori Swanson goes after another big pharmaceutical company with a lawsuit announced this week. Changes at the International Wolf Center in Ely and a new farm-to-table pilot project aims to bring locally grown produce to smaller grocery stores across the state. But first, data from the federal government indicate black students are suspended or expelled from school at a rate three times greater than white students, and students of color are more likely to be labeled as having a disability and face harsher discipline than their white counterparts. The situation is even worse in Minnesota, according to data compiled by the State Department of Education. African-American students are eight times more likely to be suspended or expelled from school, and for Native American students, it's ten times as likely. The State Department of Human Rights is trying to change that situation. MNN's Bill Werner joins us with an update. Scott, the Human Rights Department recently reached agreements with nine additional Minnesota school districts, bringing the total to 20 which pledged to work with the state to reduce suspension and expulsion rates for students of color and students with disabilities. We talked with Human Rights Commissioner Kevin Lindsay about that effort. I think one of the things that explains the higher rates of suspensions is not a holistic view by us as a society um, in ensuring that students of color, students with disabilities are engaged in the schools. Um, in our conversations with some of the schools, we found that there was some inconsistency in the application of their policies around engagement with students and also in meeting out uh, corrective action strategies by schools in interacting with students of color and then students with disabilities. Is it a, a case of where teachers are getting frustrated or they may they maybe don't have the, the correct uh, training for engagement strategies, or I don't know conflict de-escalation. I guess for lack of a of a better term, I may not be using the right right terminology. But how is it that it gets to that point? Well, I think that there's a couple of things, and in within our society, sometimes we like to think of things in a binary way. If not this, then that, and yeah. then there's one specific solution to a particular problem, and unfortunately. Uh, that is often not the case. So when we look at suspensions and expulsions for students of color and students with disabilities and we see this disproportionality, which is greater than the national average, yes, there is, there is often a need to kind of look at um, the type of coaching strategies which are provided by teachers within the school. But that can't be it. We have to take a look at the entire culture. And not only the culture within the school, I would say the culture within the community, the educational community. Let me, at risk of taking an example, just pulling something kind of kind of out of the air here. Um, but sure. maybe it's a pretty common thing. And, and, and tell me how how things are done wrong, and then how what's the what's the correct way to do it? You got a kid who, you know, mouths off to the teacher. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe has a music on in class and those kind of things, maybe swears at the teacher, uh, disrupts the class. In that particular case, how might you do things differently to have a better outcome so that that, so that, that uh, a student remains in school and is still able to continue with their education? Well, first, Bill, it, it's important when we're talking about a suspension for a full day out of a school. 
Okay. So this is not a situation in which you're not having a con- you're taking a student and having a conversation in a hallway, or you're maybe using some other uh, measure within the, the school to communicate that the behavior is unacceptable, short of actually suspending a, a kid for the whole day. Understand. And your example, I think, is kind of at the core. How, how do we take an interaction between a teacher and a student or another school official and a student, and instead of it exacerbating and become to the point of where the only option left for the school official is to then suspend the student out of the school for a day, uh, how do we short-circuit that and get the kid back into the classroom? There's no doubt that there has to be the ability for the school officials to be able to control the classroom for all of the students within that class. But it's also important for us not to enlarge a situation or make a situation worse by then taking a kid out of the class for the whole day. Um, And that's really what we're talking about. And I do appreciate and like your example because the most common type of suspension out there is a suspension which is categorized as disruptive, disorderly, or insubordination. Although you're only talking about one-day suspensions, you're not talking about expulsions here. Um, If you have one of those one week and a couple the next week and so on and so forth, then then it starts affecting the student's education pretty dramatically, doesn't it? I mean, we see these billboards that, uh, what, if you miss two days a month, you know, the percentage goes up significantly of not... Um, not passing a particular class, right? I mean, that, that, that's what happens if this con- continues on, doesn't it? No, you're exactly right. We all recognize that the most effective uh, way to reach a kid is to have the, the student in the classroom and to be there and part of the educational setting. That's really incumbent upon us as a society to stop and then ask ourselves a hard question. Shouldn't we have a better handle on why we're taking this kid out of the classroom, because we know it's affecting their ability to learn. Yeah, no question about that. Um, There's a piece concerning the culture within the organization. Uh, Sometimes organizations lean more toward um, using discipline as a punitive matter as opposed to a teaching moment. And uh, those listeners out there that are spelling be champions know that disciple, when you break that down, it is actually to teach someone not to meet out punishment. So how do we uh, really honor the roots of the word discipline um, and make sure that from a culture standpoint, all teachers are seeing this as a teachable moment, not as a punitive moment. If we see it as a teachable moment, um, as a parent, I may have a conversation, I may identify chores, but I'm not going to be kicking my kid out of the house. Commissioner Lindsay says in addition to taking advantage of teachable moments and implementing principles of restorative justice, that effort will focus on consistent application of policies between schools in a district and lessening what's termed implicit bias. Lindsay expects more districts to sign up soon. Scott? Thank you, Bill. Minnesota Matters returns after this. It's Thursday night, and you're grabbing drinks with some friends. Start it off with a pitcher for the table, which quickly becomes two. There's pool. And there's the photo booth. All right, everybody, squeeze in. Say cheese. Followed naturally by an order of wings. And another. Can we get some extra ranch sauce? 
Then there's the ceremonial nightcap. So what are we doing this weekend? And lastly, it's back to the car, which, if you're buzzed... ...could be the most expensive night of your life. Getting pulled over for buzz driving could cost you around $10,000 in fines, legal fees, and increased insurance rates. Nothing kills a buzz like getting pulled over for buzz driving, because buzz driving is drunk driving. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. As the effort to combat the opioid crisis continues, Minnesota Attorney General Lori Swanson this week announced a major lawsuit against Connecticut-based Purdue Pharma, maker of OxyContin. I spoke with Swanson about the lawsuit and how the opioid crisis is impacting families across Minnesota. Well, we filed a lawsuit against the company for misrepresenting and minimizing the addictive nature of opioid painkillers in order to sell more drugs. Um, you know, we're Minnesota, like much of the country, has an opioid epidemic right now where uh, drug dependency is very high and it's causing a lot of expenses to the state government in terms of uh, treatment and health care claims and, you know, funding Narcan, which is the drug to bring people back from overdoses. And so our lawsuit against this company says that it lied to the public and lied to physicians about the risk of addiction from opioid painkillers, and we hope to recover for the benefit of taxpayers the various increased health care and societal costs incurred due to the company's misrepresentation. Do you have a sense at this point of, of a dollar figure or what that amount may be in terms of what they've cost taxpayers? We don't have um, a direct dollar amount. I understand that, just to give you one example, in the last 10 years, the state of Minnesota paid about $10 million under the Medicaid fee-for-service program for just one of these drugs, OxyContin, and may have paid as much as $50 million through the Medicaid managed care companies that administer it. And that's just payment for the drug itself. That doesn't include all of the you know, health care costs from overdoses and babies who are born dependent on these drugs for the treatment costs, for the overdose antidotes that the state helps fund for local fire departments and first responders. Um, we'll get more specificity as the litigation occurs, but my hope of the court case is that if we can get some recovery, I would love to see the money ultimately help fund treatment. You know, for every dollar that is spent on treatment of drug dependency, you save $4 in health care costs and you save about $7 in criminal justice costs. So funding opioid dependency treatment is not only the fiscally prudent thing to do, it's just the right thing to do for patients as well. My assumption is that uh, when I spoke with you just a a couple weeks ago with regard to opioid manufacturers, you said stay tuned that there would be more litigation probably coming down the road here, and this seems to be a a, a prime example of that. Is there a particular reason or egregious reason why this company stood out for this lawsuit, and do you anticipate more down the road? This company really helped start and fuel uh, the market for uh, the use of opioid painkillers. The product didn't exist before 1996, and before 1996, physicians generally didn't prescribe opioid painkillers for anything other than either short-term acute pain like surgery or root canal 
or for things like cancer or end-of-life care. And then in 2000, or 1996, this company invented a drug called OxyContin, which became a blockbuster drug. It made about $35 billion off the sale. They make about 2 to $3 billion every year from the sale of that drug. And after OxyContin came on the market and produced, started basically minimizing you know, the addiction that can be caused by the use of the painkiller and, um, you know, minimizing the risks of the drug, you really started to see a change on the part of the healthcare field in terms of how opioid painkillers are used. Um, and so this company in particular, uh, we believe, was really largely responsible for creating the shift in how painkillers started to be prescribed much more broadly, you know, with this blockbuster products that it invented. In terms of other actions, we have another five or six companies that we're still investigating. We're in a leadership role with some colleagues in other states in those investigations. And I guess I would give the same answer. Stay tuned uh, on those. We'll see where, um, where those go uh, if, you know, if we're able to get achieved settlements or if ultimately those have to be placed into litigation as well. Uh, with regard to this specific lawsuit, are there other states going after this Connecticut-based company? There are, Scott. I think we are now the 26th state, so about half of the states are, in fact, I think about eight just sued in the last couple of weeks, including Minnesota. And so there are you know, a number of states going after them. We had been um, in some settlement talks through uh, the Northern District of Ohio, which is uh, overseeing some what they call multi-district litigation, but um, we've broken off, not broken off from the settlement talks, but placed the matter into litigation just because I wasn't satisfied with the pace of the settlement talks. Um, and so it doesn't mean talks can't continue, but at this point it was the time was right to put it into litigation. Thank you to my guest, Attorney General Lori Swanson. In a statement, Purdue Pharma says it denies the state's allegations and adds, quote, We share the Attorney General's concern about the opioid crisis. We are disappointed, however, that in the midst of good-faith negotiations with many states, Minnesota has decided to pursue a costly and protracted litigation process. While our opioid medicines account for less than 2% of total prescriptions, we will continue to work collaboratively with the states toward bringing meaningful solutions to address this public health crisis. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. There's a change happening at the International Wolf Center in Ely. J.W. Cox has the details on what has researchers excited. Scott, it all centers on pack dynamics. As the leader of a wolf pack ages, he's challenged by younger wolves for that title of alpha male. This happens with packs in the wild on a regular basis, but at the Wolf Center, curator Lori Schmidt says they've not had the opportunity to observe a shift in hierarchy in almost a decade. It's a kind of a natural process for us. In, in the captive world, that we retire out wolves around 10 years of age, and uh, new leadership takes over. So, so it's something we haven't seen since 2010, when our last pack leader was retired out. And so, what's going on right now is, you know, is is a similar process. So we're just a, you know, uh, seven years out from the from the start of the transition, uh, to uh, expecting to see something probably definitive by 
um, next fall, uh, we're likely to see the transition will be over. Schmidt has seen a few of these hierarchy shifts in her 30 years at the center, but this time they are seeing some new developments. I'm, I'm finding some really interesting correlations and social bonding kind of reinforcements uh, with change. Uh, one of the new pups from 2016 had a little bit of a difficult stretch coming into the exhibit. He was he was uh, a little bit more sensitive to change, and the dominant pack leader, which is Aiden, who's being tested right now, he really spent a fair amount of time socializing with that new pup and, and really guarded and protected that pup. And what's interesting in this transition that didn't happen in the past is that that pup still has an alliance towards the pack leader, even though they're both kind of hormonally driven to, to charge a little bit and to be a little bit of testing. But it really, we're really seeing a lot more of a, the strength of the bond is overwhelming the desire of the hormones. And so, so that's been a little bit challenging. We hadn't seen that in the 2010 transition. We don't have a female right now in the influence. And so right now we're just really dealing with Uh, all males, and so we were kind of surprised about that. We thought that that might be a little bit different. Anytime the alpha male is challenged, Schmidt says the process offers a unique glimpse into the psyche of the pack and the individual wolves. We recognize how individuals learn from one another, and that certainly plays out in you learn to be a a depredate on livestock, um, you, you know, and how that plays out in the social dynamics of how the rest of the pack acts. Uh, There's been studies of wolf packs who don't cause problems in livestock, and so certainly, you know, what makes that individual pack do something that another pack doesn't do? And I think one of the things that you're going to see, probably, you've probably seen it in dog world, but this whole idea of cognitive abilities and, and communication, you know, how do wolves structure communication when, you know, uh, there's a strategic cooperation that's going on um, you know, how does ear postures and facial expressions, how do they be able to read that and understand that and, and interact? I think 30 years ago, you never heard about discussions about the detailed uh, levels of communication uh, within wildlife studies. It was just all population dynamics. And, and now I think uh, one of the things captivity does is gives you know, an opportunity to look at that individual. Every one of the wolves that I've ever bottle-fed here, they're different. Those differences are on full display during a change in pack dynamics, and Schmidt says this current cycle highlights just how complex the wolves can be. Wolves have personalities, and those personalities have strengths and weaknesses and how they interact with each other. And I think that's kind of what's really striking, and, and that's what's really striking us with this change is the bond between two non-related pack members is so strong that, you know, it, it reinforces or changes the dynamics over something hormonally. Uh, that's pretty powerful. And so I think social alliances, how they interact, how they stay together, and, and even if you look at discussions about, you know, harvest and, and, and how, you know, harvest affects individuals. If wolves were to go back into a hunting season and, you know, what happens if a dominant animal is killed? What happens to the rest of the pack? You know, does someone take over that leadership? Do they disperse? You know, those kind of questions are, are forefront of people's minds as they look at wolf management. And while the challenges from younger wolves can be extreme, even in captivity, Schmidt says they have to be very careful when tempted to intervene. It's not a constant thing. I might be you know, a minute here or two minutes there, um, it, it, it's, a, it's a process. It's not, um, it, you know, a constant. So we're obviously concerned for this, 
dominant wolf's uh, safety in this testing, but we also want to make sure he's got to be ready to retire out. He still wants to be with his pack. You know, he's rallying with them. He's prancing. Granted, he's doing it with caution, but, you know, to pull him out and say it's safer for you to be alone away from them, that's not necessarily in his best interest. Psychologically, he wants to be part of this pack. And so we are doing everything we can to make sure that we make that decision on his terms and not on human emotion. Schmidt says there's no fixed timeline for this process, but they are seeing specific instances that signal the shift is moving well towards a conclusion. One of the younger animals started doing the bark howl, which is a bark howl, which is a defensive threat. And the pack leader sat back, and it happens to be the one he's bonded with, and he let that younger animal take over that threat. And so I think we're going to see more of that. I think we're going to see more reinforcement of the up-and-coming leader, more social kind of appeasement to that up-and-coming leader. And then when we get the next set of winter, we will see the pack unified behind that other male. The public can catch a glimpse via webcam of the wolves during this process by visiting the Wolf Center website at Wolf. Scott, back to you. Thank you, JW. Minnesota Matters will return after this. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. A new farm-to-market pilot project will bring locally grown produce to smaller grocery stores across the state. Tasha Radel has more. The first project will center around Minnesota growing garlic. Here to explain the concept is Kathy Drager with the University of Minnesota Extension. Kathy, can you break down the project for us? Yeah, oh, I'd love to tell you more about that. So with the support of uh, the USDA, uh, a program called the Agriculture Food Research Initiative, we are piloting a new project that we call the Backhaul Project. And, and basically this project is to look at what rural grocery stores around the state, um, and we have about 250 rural grocery stores, and that is in communities of population 2,500 or less. But how we can better connect area farmers with those local grocery stores <clears throat> and use the existing wholesale system um, and their routes and their logistics to actually uh, bring locally grown food into that grocery store and have it backhauled um, through the routes that are already um, being driven by these wholesalers and have it that local produce then backhauled to the wholesale um, warehouses 
for redistribution throughout the state and the region, actually. And are we focusing on, like, produce right now or what kind of foods? Yes, right now we are focusing on produce. So our first crop that we are actually testing and we're going to be putting on trucks on August 14th is uh, Minnesota premium grown garlic. So Minnesota actually has a very robust group of farmers that are growing really, you know, gourmet, very good, high-quality garlic. So those garlic growers, they're responsible for finding 100% of the markets for their garlic. You know, if you're growing corn or soybeans, you can drive to any small town and a lot of large towns, and you can deliver your corn and soybeans. You have an idea what the market price is. It's a very marketing and selling your product, your your corn and soybeans, your are you know a pretty straightforward and easy transaction. If you're growing garlic, you're responsible for selling every single one of those bulbs yourself, whether you're selling them at a farmer's market or to institutions. And luckily we have something called the Garlic Festival, which is also a great place where people can purchase a locally grown premium garlic in Minnesota. So the point is, starting with this one crop, We're going to test how it works to have the farmer bring the crop to the rural grocery store, basically meet that wholesale truck. In this case, we're working with Mason Brothers Wholesale Grocers out of Wadena, and that truck will come to the small town. It will take the goods and food off the truck and have those unloaded at the grocery store, leaving space on that semi-truck. And then we will load the pallet of garlic into that truck, and it will return to the wholesale campus. Normally, that truck would be returning empty. So these trucks leave Wadena, and they go to three, four stores in a day. They bring, you know, bananas, coffee, toilet paper, you know, your whole range of groceries to the grocery store. And then they turn around and go empty back to Wadena. And we saw that as an opportunity to connect local produce farmers with that wholesale. Wow, that's pretty cool. What a what a concept is it? Did you come up with this idea, Kathy? Yes, I did come up with this idea, and it's it's really I think this is the beauty of working for University of Minnesota Extension is that Extension has staff, University of Minnesota staff that are located in every county in the state of Minnesota, and by virtue of knowing the local grocer, knowing the local farmers getting to know the wholesalers and building those relationships, you could see that there was a gap in how farmers were accessing markets. We really need rural grocery stores to thrive because, um, unfortunately, many of them are closing, um, and we, we need food access. Um, so I wanted to make sure we were supporting the rural grocery store. Um, and then consumer demand for locally grown food just continues to increase. So it seemed like a really... Um, unmet opportunity. And all the infrastructure was there. We didn't have to add a single truck. We didn't have to add a single cooler. We didn't have to recruit a single farmer. I mean, we have all those pieces in place. It was really just a matter of knitting them all together and building the relationships. Now, this is just a pilot, so we should talk again later in August, and I can say garlic moves successfully through the system, and you can find it on your grocer's shelves in you know, Long Prairie, Minnesota, or wherever 
we hope it ends up at, at many stores throughout Minnesota. Thanks again to my guest, Kathy Drager with University of Minnesota Extension. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.